Okay. Before I start, I'm just going to give you a little announcement about about the class. We only have, I think, four weeks left. So if you look at the outline of our class, you'll see where we've been we, we went through a whole section on the person of Jesus Christ and now we've gone through most of the work of Jesus Christ. Down toward the bottom of that, there's two sections there, one called the cross-centered life and another called following Christ in a postmodern world. And I uh, just want to tell you that I'm, I'm going to be skipping those because um, I'm going to move on. However, I'm going to do a brief lesson on applying the atonement to our daily life and what that looks like. Then I hope to cover these actually quite a bit more extensively later on next year because what I'm going to do is I'm going to start into the gospel and I'm going to do for the next uh, several weeks a series on defining the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel message? What is the Christian gospel? And we're going to talk about that at length. And then, of course, the class lets out for the summer. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up next year talking about the Lordship of Christ, and talking about justification by faith, okay? And that's going to take us quite a while. Then toward the end of that, I'm going to do a whole series on correcting modern gospel errors. And I'm going to show you how many of the modern errors have just repackaged heresies over the many centuries of church history, and that, but furthermore, how to discern between the true gospel and a false gospel, and... Uh, some, some application. So along with that, we're going to talk a lot about postmodernity and what it means to live in a postmodern world. What are we even talking about when we use terms like that? And um, so uh, from that point there, we're going to deal more extensively with uh, what it means to follow Christ in the postmodern world and furthermore, how we communicate the gospel to postmoderns. Okay? And I'll give you a hint. There's a book that's recently been written by a guy by the name of Tim Keller. It's called The Reason for God. Okay? If you will, uh, I think it's a fabulous um, approach to evangelizing postmoderns. What I mean by postmoderns is people in our day and culture, specifically in America. Okay? So, Tim Keller. Tim Keller... I'll write this down for you. Tim Keller, The Reason for God. You can also find that book, a link to that book, where you can buy it, on the front page of my website. Right there. Okay? Okay, with that, let's go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise you this day. We honor you and we bless you for your goodness and your love to us. We do count precious the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. God, it is precious to us and we thank you. Lord, we do treasure the cross and all that you have done for us in Christ. So, Lord, we ask today that you would strengthen our faith And help us, Lord, to believe all that you have done for us. 
Help us, Lord, to see how it applies to our life and, Lord, how we can rest now in your favor that we have on the basis of Christ's merit and not on uh, works of our own. We thank you for the complete salvation that you have given us in Christ. And, Lord, we look forward to that future hope of glory that you are working in us. And, Lord, that you will bring about soon and very soon. Lord, that we shall be brought into your presence and glorified with your son Jesus so that we even become like him. Father, we thank you and we honor you and we bless you and we look forward to that day. We ask that you would strengthen our faith that each day we might live lives that glorify you. God, that we would speak and tell others of your glory and your majesty and your goodness and your mercy to us in our Lord Jesus. We ask that you would uh, come to live in our hearts, in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, that your love and your peace and your joy would abide in our hearts. God, that your peace would rule in our hearts, that your word would dwell richly within us, and that we would truly be a people to the praise of your glory. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us, We thank you for the freedom that we have to proclaim your word in this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. There is a a new handout for today. Actually, we're going to be... Starting on page 56, which is part of the handout from last week, but we're going to move on to page 57, Lord willing, and there we're going to be talking about the atonement applied to our daily life. However, um, carrying on from last week's lesson, we we were talking about glorification, and this has come out of uh, uh, talking about distinctions in salvation. So if you will, when we talk about salvation... As Pastor Tim many times will tell us, he'll say that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And this is because in the Bible, and in, in with biblical words, the Bible speaks about salvation in these three tenses. It speaks about it in past tense, it speaks about it in present tense, and it speaks about it in future tense. So the scripture would actually say to us that we have been saved. For instance, Ephesians 2.9, for grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. But then again, in like, for instance, in Philippians 2.12, it tells us to work out our salvation. That right now, in the present, that we are currently working out our salvation. And that that is the process of sanctification that God is working in us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But then also, the scripture speaks to us about being saved in the future, that there's yet coming a more fullness to the redemption that Christ has purchased in us. For instance, in Romans 8, in verse 23, it says, <clears throat> But we also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. 
And so the scripture would talk about this future redemption of our body that we are eagerly waiting for. And so there is yet coming a more complete and a more full sense to our salvation that we call glorification. So we've been making these distinctions, and every Christian should think about their salvation in this way. They should think about it in the past tense, in the present tense, and in the future tense, because that's how the Bible presents it to us. We have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We have been saved, even though now we are currently in the process of being sanctified by God, or if you will, we are being saved through the process that God is working in us by the ministry of the Spirit, whereby we are, we are being, as the Scripture says, transformed from glory to glory. Right? 2 Corinthians 3.18. That we're, we are more and more being conformed into the image of Christ and taking on His very character and His very likeness. Right? But then yet there is yet this future element to our salvation which we call glorification so if you will the past tense the present tense and the future tense of salvation we call salvation sanctification and glorification okay and we should not confuse those categories these categories help us to rightly understand the different tenses of scripture that we see as we're reading through the bible okay it gives us a clear understanding that the Bible isn't always speaking, if you will, in a past tense when it speaks about salvation. Okay? It's many times speaking in a future tense. And so it helps us to kind of categorize those things and understand. Okay, we have been saved. We've, been, we've become regenerate by the Holy Spirit. We have the life of God, the nature of God implanted within our souls. And we have been born again by the seed of the, of the Word of God. Right, And now as the Spirit of God is applying that to our life, we're being sanctified. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. We're becoming more and more like Him as time goes forward and as God works in us that sanctification by His Spirit. But all of that is going to culminate in what we call glorification. And we are literally going to take on the glory of God. And that's what the Scripture says. So if you will... I want to start there and just briefly review what we talked about last week from page 55. Just a few things to point out about glorification, okay? Number one, that glorification simply defined speaks of that state of perfection and glory into which the believer will be transformed in the resurrection at the second coming of Christ. Okay, so it's talking about a state of perfection and glory that we take on. We, we are going to be transformed into a state of perfection, into a state of immortality, to use another biblical word, into a state of imperishable, to use another biblical word. We're going to be changed, we're going to be transformed, Amen? And that this state is said to be in the New Testament the glory of God. We're going to take on the very glory of God within our bodies personally. Okay? So, more than that, it's, it's more than just a state of perfection, but it's to this glory that we've been called by God. So, when we were effectually called by the Spirit of God into the kingdom of God, 
by the Spirit of God. Right? We were not just called to become a Christian, but we were called to the very glory of God. This is what Peter says, 1 Peter 5.10. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see what we've been called to? We've been called to this glorious state of perfection by God. We were called out of the darkness into what? Into this state of glory. Right? Which, which as we were describing last week, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the very light that emanates, right? From the person of God. And, and uh, if you will, that light is emanating from all of God's manifold perfections. And we're going to take that on, the scripture says. That we were called to glory, and that glory is what? Eternal glory. It's glory that is, is everlasting in the presence of God. That's what we were called to. Amen? Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Amen? Let me tell you, this life here, it's nothing but a little light and momentary affliction. That's achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. Amen? And we need to keep our eyes fixed on that. Because we get our eyes fixed on this world, we got a lot to be depressed about. Amen? God help us to look beyond this life to what the reality of our salvation really is. This is just a momentary pilgrimage. This is not our home. We're just passing through this place. Amen? We're on our way to glory. We're on our way to that land that flows with milk and honey. Amen? Okay, well, so then. Not only were we called to glory, but the scripture says that we were prepared for glory by God. That God has prepared us for this glory. Like other aspects of salvation, glorification is the work of God. To this state of glory, believers are effectually called, drawn, brought, predestined, and foreordained. These are all biblical words talking about the fact that God has predestined us for glory. That he has set our destiny beforehand. And what is that destiny? It's glory. Like he says in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So we were foreknown and we were predestined. For what? He goes on. To become conformed to the image of his Son. What were we predestined for? To be like Christ. To be conformed into the image of Jesus. Get this. We're going to be like Jesus. Amen? You want to know what glory is about? Let me tell you. We're going to be like Jesus. No longer struggling with sin and guilt and shame and death. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Amen? And we're going to be like Jesus. Glorious. He goes on to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see, there's coming a day when we're going to be glorified in the presence of God. We are going to take on that state of perfection and glory that Christ possesses. Amen? 
So then we were prepared for glory by God. This is what the scripture says. God has said to uh, uh, make known to us the riches of his glory and that he has even prepared us beforehand for glory. For instance, Romans 9, verse 23 and 24 says this, And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of his mercy. I want to ask you a question. Is God now making known to you the riches of his glory? Are you not continually enamored by the glory of the grace of God? Amen? And the glory of His person as we come to know Him and we come to experience His love and His power and His majesty and His wisdom. Amen? He's making known to us His glory. He's making known to us His character. We're coming to know Him. And, And this is just powerfully transforming us. Amen? But look what he goes on to say there. He he goes on to say, which he, that is God, prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. You see that? Here the scripture says that God prepared us beforehand for glory. So I ask you, whose work is it? It's God's work. Amen? Amen? We are the humble recipients of it. Right? This is something that God has done. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Amen? Listen, family. These are the words of God. He has called us to glory. He's prepared us for glory. And it is to this glory that we're going to be transformed. Amen? There's not anything mundane about it. Life may seem pretty mundane from day to day. Let me tell you, we're headed for glory. Amen? And I'm telling you, it's going to be something far beyond anything you can possibly imagine. What I'm talking about is a fulfillment of the soul, which is far beyond anything you can possibly comprehend or imagine. Amen? It's glorious promises we have from God. Well, Not only has he prepared us for this glory, but let me tell you, the scripture talks about it as the riches of the glory of God. Now I want to ask you a question. How rich is God? And if God has a treasure chest full of riches, where is the bottom of that? Are you with me? We're talking about the God that speaks and flings millions of galaxies into space. And measures the whole breadth of it all with the span of his hand. Amen? What must the riches of his glory be like? And the scripture says, it is to this that we have been called, that we might have, Ephesians 1.18, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul's praying for the Christians, that their eyes will be open to understand the hope of the glory of the glorious riches of the inheritance of God that we have in the saints. Are you with me? It's going to take a supernatural revelation just for us to get a little bit of grasp of it. Amen? That's what he says, Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What is the hope of his calling? He tells us what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Amen? 
we have a transcendent, glorious promise for God, from God, that we are going to partake of the riches of His glory, that it is an eternal glory, and I would add, inexhaustible, inexhaustible and infinite glory of God that is going to become ours. Family, let me tell you, it will take all of the eons of eternity for us to experience the riches of the glory of God. You know why? Because they're infinite. They never end. They never end. Because God in his own perfect nature is infinite. He's infinite by nature. Therefore, his resources are infinite. Are you with me? It's glorious. It's just It just transcends this world. We can't hardly get our hands around it. Because everything in this world is finite. Amen? And everything in this world is fallen. It's tainted by sin and it's fleeting away. It only gives pleasure for a moment. Amen? But God is infinite and eternal. Amen? So, God help us to see this hope of glory that we have. God help us to see what we've been called to and who we really are in Christ and what we really possess in Christ. Amen? It's glorious. It's awesome. It's profound. And how about this? That we are literally going to take on this glory personally. You know, we keep talking about this as we've been talking about the work of Christ, how it's a personal work. That, that Jesus died for me, Sean. And that Jesus died for you, personally. The gospel is something that's very personal. And the cross is something that is very personal. Remember how I was telling you how the Old Testament worshiper, when he came to the tabernacle and he brought his offering with him on the Day of Atonement, do you remember how he would come before the priest and he would bring that lamb before the priest? And they would lay their hands on the head of that priest and they would confess their sin. And then you know what was next? He didn't wait for the priest to kill the sacrifice. He was to take the knife in his own hands and kill that lamb for the sacrifice of his sins and the sins of his family. That lamb became a very personal thing to him. You understand? And in the same way, Jesus died on that cross for me. He died for my sins. And he died for your sins. Amen? Are you with me? So, even as the gospel is a very personal thing for us, that Christ died for me, he died in my place, because I belong on that cross. Amen? Even in the same way, let me tell you, glorification is personal because you personally are going to take on the very glory of God in your own person and your whole nature is going to be ultimately transformed are you with me that the very body that you have is going to be transformed into the likeness of his glorious body so that your whole person Okay, both soul and body, however you want to describe it. Okay, your whole person is going to take on the glory of God. This is what the Bible says. First John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. 
You see, we're going to be like him. And the Bible gives us, in the New Testament, many clear descriptions of what that's like. But as I said earlier, it's a state of perfection and glory. It's a state of glory. If one can even try to comprehend what that is, it's a very spiritual thing to consider. A state of glory. Okay, But knowing the glory of God, we should have some kind of a glimpse of what this means that we're going to partake of. Are you with me? Glorification speaks of the sanctification and moral perfection that we will take on at the resurrection when Christ appears. And don't forget this. The what of it is the state of glory and perfection. The when of it is when he appears. Are you with me? There is a when of glorification because it's going to happen in a moment in time. It's going to happen at a specific time. And we're going to be powerfully changed. Are you with me? And so this is what the scripture says. When he appears, we shall be like him. And it doesn't just say that in one place. It says it in many places, as I will show you. Um, so, but we shall be made like Christ and take on his holiness, perfection, and immortality. Okay? So, uh, in finishing our review there, we are going to take on the glory of Christ personally. So now I'm, I'm at the top of page 56 and we're moving on from there. And talking a little bit more about the what of glorification, let's look at some more scriptures. If you are in Christ, you have been born again and raised up with Christ from that dead state of sin that you were formerly in. Right? If you've been born again, you've been raised up with Christ. You've been transformed by the Spirit of God. Your mind... Your will, your emotions have been transformed by the Spirit of God and you have experienced what we call regeneration. You've been born again. You've been transformed. Okay? But you still live in a mortal body which is subject to sin and temptation which will shortly die physically. You see, right now our bodies are mortal Our bodies are mortal. What do we mean by that? It means that it's subject to death. The body is going to die. Right? We live in a mortal body. That means we're going to die. We're dying. We're aging. And that aging ends in death. Amen? However, the believer in Christ has been born again by the Spirit of God. We've been regenerate. And we now have what? We have a hope that transcends death. Right? Well, think about the ways that the Scripture describes this. Although we live in this mortal body and we're subject to sin and to temptation, uh, we're going to die physically, but this physical death for the Christian is the portal by which we enter into glory. Amen? Are you with me? Though the body they may kill, what? God's truth abideth still. Right? You kill this body, I'm entering into glory. Are you with me? That's the hope of the Christian. It transcends this life. And we ought to be living in eager expectation of it. You understand how this has just utterly surrendered the fear of death? I mean, we we have no reason to fear death. Because at death, we're going to be brought into the glorious presence of God. Amen? 
That's why I, I wonder so many times why Christians despise their birthdays. For me, it's a whole, it's a whole different deal. I'm, I'm standing on my head when people are talking about despising their birthday and getting older. Why is that? It's another year closer to glory. That's the thing I'm hoping for. I got nothing left in this world. Everything in this world is perishing. It's fleeting. It's painful. It hurts. Amen? I'm, I'm going to a different place. I'm going to a place where God is the builder and the maker. Amen? And it's not tainted by the fallen sinful activity of man. Are you with me? Not only that, my own sinful heart is going to be changed. And I'm going to become like Jesus, never to even think about sin again. Can you imagine that? I'm tormented by sinful thoughts day and night, and every righteous man and woman is. Amen? But let me tell you something. There's coming a day when we're going to be transformed from that. Let me tell you, we got something to hope for. Are you with me? Okay? And... uh <clears throat> When we die, we enter into glory. Okay, so we shouldn't look for we we shouldn't look at death as as some tremendous, uh, uh, terrible enemy. Let me tell you, it's a tremendous, terrible enemy, but only in the sense that it robs us from our living loved ones. Are you with me? But for us personally, it's just a doorway into glory. It's a doorway into perfection and immortality. Are you with me? Listen, this is the hope that we have as Christians. We don't have any fear of what's happening on the other side of that doorway. Because Jesus paid it all. And it is finished. Amen? Okay. Here is our great and blessed hope that our earthly, physical, and mortal body will be transformed to be like Christ's heavenly, spiritual, and immortal body is. Our bodies will no longer be subject to sin and temptation. Indeed, we will put on immortality and being immortal, we will never again be subject to death or dying or pain. This is what the scripture says. Now, this is a biblical word, okay? Immortality. We will take on immortality. This mortal shall take on immortality you know what that means right immortality means you can never die that's what it means mortal you can die immortal you cannot die that speaks to the nature of the complete transformation that happens to us at glorification are you with me so let's hear the word of god on this matter philippians 3 20 and 21 For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. You see what the Scripture says? That He is going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. So your body is going to be changed. It's going to be changed into what? Into conformity with the body of Christ's glory. You understand what that means? You're going to receive a glorious body like Jesus has. That's what it means. 
And we get a glimpse of that, don't we? I'll give you a couple scripture references for that. Luke 24, 30 and 31. Luke 24, verses 36 through 52. Okay? You see a picture of Jesus in his glorified body, and you see the kind of activity that he carries on with the disciples and so on and so forth. But the point is, is that, listen, he's going to transform, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Understand? Then again, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44, Paul is talking about the resurrection, and this is what he says. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Okay, here's another biblical word imperishable you know what imperishable means right cannot perish right isn't that the promise of God held out in the gospel for God so loved the world right that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life We're going to live forever in heaven with God in an immortal, imperishable body that is conformed to the body of Christ's glory. Are you with me? This body is going to be changed. That's what the scripture says. He says, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Okay. He's talking about the resurrection. Paul says, this is what the resurrection of the dead looks like. It's sown in dishonor. It dies the dust of death in Sheol where the worm is. Right? But what happens? It's raised in glory, he says. It's raised in glory. It's sown perishable. The body decays and returns to the dust. Right? But at the resurrection, what happens? It's raised imperishable. That's what he says. Never again to perish again. Never again to do that dust and decay thing that happened with the old body. Amen? He goes on. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's a powerful body. You see that? He goes on. It's sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And you wonder why we call it a spiritual body all the time. We're going to get a spiritual body. Amen? Or I like to say a glorified body. Right? We're we're going to receive, the scripture says, a spiritual body. Okay? A spiritual body. If there is a natural body, Paul says, there is also a spiritual body. So listen, it's an immortal body, it's an imperishable body, it's a powerful body. And it is a spiritual body. That's, those are all biblical words, family. That's how the Bible describes our glorification. This is how the Bible describes the state of perfection our bodies are going to take on. Okay? It's a glorious reality. He goes on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 53. Look what he says there. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now this is one of the passages where we, we see what we call the rapture or the resurrection. You know, I want to say this. When we think about the rapture, 
want to say this because I'm going to say a lot about this in the next few minutes. When we think about the rapture, I want you to understand what that means. Okay, The rapture is a Latin word, which is um, in the Greek text in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses, uh, verse 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. There is a word there which says, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Familiar with that? That Greek word right there, uh, which I forget the Greek word, forgive me. Harpazo, there we go. That Greek word is it has a Latin equivalent called rapturos. Okay? That's where we get the word rapture. So, when you think about the term rapture when it's used in modern eschatological senses, I don't want you to think about Tim LaHaye and left behind. Okay? Because what you have there is Tim LaHaye's fictional story about eschatology. Okay? What I think is a far better thing for you to think about is, right, the word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 that says we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Are you with me? It means that we're going to be literally taken off the ground (laughs) to meet the Lord in the air. That's what it means. Okay? And the reason we call it the rapture is because of this Latin equivalent of the word rapturos. And we put that in English and it's rapture. We, we use that English word many times to say we'll be raptured away. Or we, we were at the opera and the music was so beautiful we were raptured away in, in pleasant thoughts of loveliness. Right? Are you with me? <laughs> so, so we use that term. But in the biblical sense, what that's speaking of is the term that's used there in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Okay? So when you think about the rapture, think about that. Okay? It's a reality. Let me tell you, it's a reality. The rapture is a reality. It's going to happen. Okay? And that doesn't matter if you're premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial. Everybody who is, if you will, in those orthodox eschatological camps all believe in a rapture. They all believe in a time when there will be Christians alive believing on the earth who will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, who don't actually die. Right? Okay, so having said that, Remember, now what I'm telling you, conform your thinking to the Bible, not to contemporary popular ideas about what things are in the Bible. Unless, of course, those contemporary popular ideas are true and right. Are you with me? And I won't comment further on that in this lesson. (laughs) But when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 53... Um, there we see a a passage that's talking about the rapture. Here's what Paul says. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now what's he saying? He's saying we're not all going to die, but we all are going to be resurrected, right? Because this is in the context of the resurrection. And here's what he says. He says, In a moment, now how long will it take? A moment, right? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he says, we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying it's going to happen. 
Not only that, he's, he's getting very eschatological on us. And he's saying, listen, there's going to become a point in time, in, in the last times, okay? In a moment. Not everybody's going to die, but Christ is going to come. And guess what? Those who are alive and remain are going to be changed. And when they're changed, what's going to happen? They're going to put on immortality. And the perishable is going to put on imperishable. You understand what he's saying? Saying there's going to come a moment in time when this happens. So we all know Christ is coming again, right? And when he appears, we shall be like him, right? Which is what John said. Well, here Paul is telling us what's going to happen. He's saying the resurrection is going to have a point in time when it takes place. And so he's now he's not just talking about the reality of it, but he's saying the reality of it is actually going to happen in time and space. Are you with me? It's a very important thing to consider, especially as we look at other passages that deal with this. But I wanted you to see the character and the nature of this resurrection body. Are you with me? The character and the nature of the resurrection body. It's immortal. It's imperishable. It's powerful. And it's spiritual. Are you with me? It's all right out of the Bible, family. Okay? So then, that's the what of it. The what of it is immortal, imperishable, powerful, and spiritual. The when of it. The when of it is when Christ appears, when he comes again at the second coming of Christ. You understand? So here's what the scripture says. I'm sorry. I have a few words and then I'll read the scripture. These things will have their fulfillment at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is at this time that we shall be changed and become like him. The Bible plainly declares that at the second coming of Christ, we will participate with him in his glory and power over death and sin. These things will happen when he comes in power and glory, when he appears and we are gathered together with him and not a moment before. Okay, and those are biblical terms. Those terms there, uh, when he comes in power and in glory, those are biblical terms, talking about the coming of Christ. When he appears, that's a biblical term, talking about when Christ is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Amen? Second Thessalonians 1. And furthermore, um, it, there it also in Second Thessalonians, when we are gathered together with him, Okay, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him. Amen? You understand what he's saying? When Jesus comes, He's going to gather us together with Him. Amen? Okay? So, for instance, Colossians 3, 4 will say this, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. You see that? So when is the when of it? When when shall you be revealed with Christ in glory? When he appears. That's what the scripture says. Or here in the NASB, when he is revealed. Who has a translation that says when he appears? That ESV? ESV would translate that when he appears. Anybody else? Anybody have an NKJV? When he is manifested. Okay, manifested, revealed. See, we have all these English words. The idea is, look, when Christ shows up, you're going to show up with him in glory. That's what the Bible says. Okay? 
Uh, <clears throat> or how about First Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17? Now, this is another. These are all passages talking about the rapture, but this one here um, is very specific. Chapter 4, verse 15 and following. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now what's he saying? Those of us Christians who are alive, who are waiting for the coming of the Lord, we will not go before those who have died in Christ before us. Right? Which he refers to as falling asleep. Paul's terminology in these letters, right? And uh, there he says, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay, now listen. Jesus himself is going to what? Descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So here's the deal. Here's the win of it. When Jesus comes, the first thing to happen is the dead in Christ rise concerning the resurrection. The first thing to happen is the dead in Christ rise. Okay? The dead out of Christ don't rise. (laughs) Are you with me? It's the dead in Christ who rise, and they rise first. That's Paul's point here. They rise first. Then the scripture says, Then... We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them who is them. The dead in Christ and Christ, right? We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen? Let me tell you, that's a permanent thing. You got that? (laughs) So when Christ returns, what happens? Dead in Christ rise first. And those living Christians who are still alive are caught up to meet them together with the Lord in the air. And what? Thus we shall be with the Lord forever. Encourage each other with these words. Amen? Listen, when Jesus comes, he's going to take us to be with him. Amen? Okay, so the point here is that at the second coming of Christ, this resurrection takes place. And we're going to take on an immortal, powerful, spiritual, imperishable body. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air if we're still alive at that time. Amen? Yeah. I've got a question about if, if uh, when we die, we go to meet the Lord. And then here it says that those, uh, that when Christ comes the second time, that then the, the first to die will go to be with Christ. I'm sorry? It says that to, to die is to be present with the Lord. Uh-huh. So if, if those who have died are with the Lord, then when the Lord comes the second time, it says that then the dead in Christ will be risen. Right. Okay, has everybody got that? Everybody understand that, his question? Yeah. Okay, so the issue is this. <clears throat> Even though when you die, you go to be your essence, your body, your, I'm sorry, your soul goes to meet the Lord in his presence. Your body is dying. In time and space, it's here rotting in the corruption of death. Okay? At the resurrection, that body is going to be raised. So when he talks about the dead in Christ, he's talking about even the bodies of those who have died in Christ are going to be resurrected, raised, and they're going to meet with us and with Christ in the body of his glory. Are you with me? So the simple answer is that's when the body is resurrected. 
Because the soul passes into eternity at death. Into the presence of God. Yeah? Create a bunch of questions? <laughs> That's good. At least you're thinking. How about Matthew 24? <clears throat> Verses 29 and following. Here it says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And what will he do? He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. You see what Christ does when he returns? He gathers his elect. He comes in power and in glory and he's glorified in his saints on that day. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 Right? This is again and again seen at the coming of Christ. Daniel speaks about it only in the sense of a resurrection. Here's what he says, chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. He says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now think about the words that Daniel is using to describe the resurrection. Particularly those who are resurrected, as he says, to everlasting life. Those, he says, will do what? They will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, like the stars forever and ever. What's he talking about? Glory. They're going to shine with glory. Okay? What are we going to partake of at this resurrection? The glory of God. And we're going to shine like the glory of the sun, Jesus says. Like the stars forever and ever. Amen? That's amazing to think of. What is this change that's coming? What is this transformation? I think it's something far beyond anything we can comprehend. But, did I stir up a bunch of questions? Do you all have some questions? Yay? Okay, I'm going to get there. Let me just end with this and I'll take a few questions and then we'll knock off. Therefore, with hope, we look beyond our present sufferings to that day when we will be transformed and come into his presence. The suffering of this present life is not even worthy to be compared to the surpassing greatness of the future state of glory we will partake of. Okay, now think about this truth, okay? We, we have the what of it, right? We have the when of it. When is the when of it? When Christ returns, when he appears, right? But then we have, listen, the hope of it. The hope of it. You understand what hope is? Hope is something that we have now that we're longing for later. See, hope has a reference to time. Are you with me? It's like thinking. Thinking has a reference to time. Contemplation of thought, right? Hope is looking forward to something that is yet to happen. Okay, And we have this hope of glory that we have. 
Okay. Now I want you to think about the way that the Bible describes this hope that we have in regard to our present sufferings in life. And the Bible, you understand, because we're all struggling with suffering. Every one of us is struggling with suffering on a daily basis. Amen? And, and some worse than others. Right? Some have a harder road to hoe than others. Amen? But nevertheless, we're all experiencing the, this present suffering. Okay? But when the Bible speaks about our hope and it speaks about our present suffering, you know what it does? It talks about the glory that we're going to partake of. And it tells us, don't get your eyes fixed on these present sufferings. You know why? Because they're not even worth comparing to the glory that we shall possess. Are you with me? So you have to look beyond your sufferings, Christian. You can't get tied up in your circumstances. Look to your God. You can't be caught up in what you're doing day by day or you're going to be downcast. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be defeated. You know why? Because sin is an awesome defeat. And then while you abide in it, it's painful. It hurts. Okay? But listen, in Christ, we have a transcendent promise that reaches beyond our suffering to the eternal glory of God, which is world without end. Let me tell you, this little life of 80 years is nothing but a little blip. Remember my little drawing here? It's just a little blip, 80 years, you know? And eternity is like, 10 trillion light years that way. Are you with me? It's just a little blip. This life, it's nothing but a vapor. It's just a mist, man. It's just, you know, it's here today and gone tomorrow. It's like the grass in the field. It springs up, you know, and, and by fall, you know, it's, it's withered and fallen away. Let me tell you, it's just light and it's just momentary. That's what the Bible says. Are you with me? So, we, therefore, with hope, we look beyond our present sufferings to that day when we will be transformed and come into his presence. You understand? We shall see God. Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end he shall stand upon the earth, and I shall see him in my own flesh. I shall see him. You know where Job's hope was. And you know how great his despair was. But you know where Job was looking? He was looking for his Redeemer to come. Amen? The suffering of this present life is not even worthy to be compared to the surpassing greatness of the future state of glory we will partake of. This is what the Bible says. Romans 8.18 Write this one on your heart. Okay? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know what Paul says about our current sufferings. They're not even worth comparing. Don't even think about it. When you're thinking about the glory, don't even think about the present sufferings. You can't even compare them. Are you with me? Or let me put it another way. You think your suffering is tremendous and terrible? I'm sure that it is. But you know what? It's not even worth comparing to the glory we're going to experience. You know why? Because that glory is eternal. And your suffering here, it's just, it's just momentary. It's appointed. It has an appointed time. It's very short. For me, it may be 50 years. For you, it may be 80. For my grandma, it may be 100. Okay? But it's just a little blip in time. 
But the glory, it lasts forever. It never ends. It's imperishable, immortal. No more tears, no more dying, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away, says the Lord. Amen? Are you with me? It's not even worth comparing. You can't even compare it. Okay? 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and following. Therefore, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is renewed day by day. Right? This outer man, this body is aging, it's dying, it's getting older, I'm groaning more and more on a regular basis. Right? But he says the inner man is being renewed day by day. Every day I wake up and the life of God is in my mortal soul. Amen? And every day I wake up, I've got the hope of glory. And every day I wake up, I know Jesus is coming soon. Amen? And every day I wake up, i got a reason to live. I've got a God to glorify. I've got people to love. I've got joy to experience. I've got peace to make with my enemies. Amen? I've got patience to show with people. Amen? I've got hands, and so I can show kindness and love and mercy and grace. Are you with me? we got a reason to live. And it all ends in glory for the Christian. Amen? Are you with me? Isn't anything mundane about it? Not if you realize what you have and who you are and who your God is. Amen? So he says... Verse 17, for a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul uses the same words. He says it's far beyond all comparison. You can't even compare it. This, this is just a light and momentary affliction compared to the glory that we're going we're to experience in God's presence. Amen? I don't know about you. That charges my batteries every day I wake up. I don't have any hope in this world. The only hope I have here is to try to love people while I'm here and try to lead them to Christ. Because I know where I'm going. Amen? Are you with me? And by, and by God's grace, I'm going to drag as many people there, even if they come kicking and screaming. I'm going to take them with me, if I can, by the power of God and by the ministry of His gospel. Amen? Okay. Glorification is that sure and firm promise of God that he shall deliver us to his presence where sin will be finally eradicated from our lives and we will be transformed to become like him. There we shall share in his glory with gladness and everlasting happiness in his kingdom. Amen? Okay, if there's a couple of questions, I'll take them just real quick. Greg. Uh oh. I thought you were going to ask about that. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Right. Mm hmm. Okay, well, without trying to analyze those biblical words, which I can't do, I'm obviously not prepared to do, but just to say that 
the Pauline terms and the reason that Paul uses the term sleep is to simply talk to the Christian about the fact that even though they die, they're going to be raised to eternal life. And he's giving them the concept that their death is really a lot like sleep, more than it is a, a permanent perishing in death. Are you with me? So, so Paul uses that terminology to typify um, the, the reality that the Christian has a hope beyond the grave, which is powerful and spiritual and everlasting. And, and it's, so therefore, it's much like sleep because we're going to awake into the glory and the presence of God. But you don't ever see him talking about the wicked like that. The wicked, the wicked do destroy, are destroyed by God forever. Are you with me? And so, so there's, Paul doesn't characterize their death in that way. So did I answer your question? Well, there's two senses of that, okay? And I'll just briefly, um, in time and space, to those of us who have people who die, there is time involved because they're dead and we don't have them in our presence and we're grieved, right? And that time will, will endure until we die, right? However, when, when we die, we pass into the presence of God. God is in eternity and there we're in that timeless state with God. Are you with me? That's why the doctrine of soul sleep doesn't work. Because when you pass into the presence of God, you pass into that timeless place where God is in eternity. Are you with me? So there is a sense in which it's timeless. The Christian death is timeless in that sense. But in the sense of those of us who are alive and remain, who are still in the time-space continuum, right? There is a time involved. You with me? Okay. Is there one more? Okay. Yes, ma'am. The dead in Christ does not include the Old Testament saints. I would argue that it does. Yes, I would argue that it does. And I would point you to things like uh, Luke 16, where Jesus talks about Abraham's bosom and those who were there. And then I would also point you to passages in 1 Peter that talk about uh, what Christ did uh, in descending. Ephesians talks about the same thing. He led captivity captive. And, and if you will, there was a whole host of righteous dead who before the cross could not actually come into the very presence of God because the, the temple of God, the body, had not been sanctified through the blood of Christ. But at the death of Christ, that all changed and therefore ushered in all of those Old Testament saints who some prefer to call the church in the Old Testament, others not. But either way, all those Old Testament saints uh, are in fact brought into the presence of God at the cross. Right? Or, or should I say at the resurrection? But it was accomplished at the cross. Are you with me? So I would argue that the dead in Christ do include the Old Testament saints. Okay, did I answer that? Okay, we, we got we to gotta knock off. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we thank you. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see this glory. And more than that, Lord, that you would encourage us with your hope. From, from your spirit, God, that you would give us hope, particularly those who are, are, are here, Lord, who are facing much suffering. God, may they look to that day of glory when you are going to make everything right. 
And God, you're going to put everything in its proper place and every single thing you will put in its proper order. And Lord, we shall lie down in peace. And we shall find a refuge in our Lord Jesus Christ. And there we shall see him and be with him forever. Oh Lord, cause this hope to grow in our hearts, I pray, through faith and by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.